invite you to turn to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 8. <clears throat> so before we left for Europe, we were in uh, chapter 8, the very beginning. The uh, woman who was caught in adultery, and uh, we have another invader. Now we're picking up from ch- uh, verse 12 and looking at verse 12 through verse 20 in light of the world. As Christ is offering what is one, his second actually, of seven uh, I am statements, his declaration of his deity. So let's read together verse 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And now, but no one was arresting him because his hour had not yet come. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the power that is inherent in them. We know, O Lord, that your word alone has the ability, it and it alone has the unique ability to pierce the hearts of fallen man. We ask you to do that now, O Lord, for those of us who know you and those who may not, that in any case you would use your word as it goes out, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it. So may we give very careful attention to the things that you show to us here this morning as we work through this passage. We ask this for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So God created physical light, of course, through the agency of Christ. We know from the Genesis account that light was created as part of the creation story. It's so that man wouldn't dwell in darkness as God's creating the physical world and he's about to create physical man in his image and likeness. He would not have him dwell in darkness. But you're familiar with the account where he says in Genesis 1, 3 to 4, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So light is a created thing, physical light, that is. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So it's interesting, isn't it? Why didn't he just leave the lights on, is what I was thinking about. As I'm looking at this, I'm like, why shut the lights off? Well, In a sense, we shut the lights off in Genesis 3, yeah? We shut the lights off both physically in that we die now, but also spiritually in the immediacy of the separation of Adam and Eve, our first parents, from our Creator God. So 
He has that separation. It's interesting between the light and the darkness, the day and the night, as he calls it. They stand in in bold contrast with one another. It's there for us to observe at any time should we care to think about it. It's kind of the context we're in. So we may not consciously think about the fact that, wow, it's interesting that God created light. And we're in this 24-hour cycle where we have light for a time and then it's night. And that at nighttime we have at least, a, a, we have the night light on, don't we? Because we're getting light in the stars and the moon, which is light reflected from the sun. So the sun is always producing light. It is there producing it in its full expression as we see today and we've seen these past few days as it's been very sunny. And we also have some ability to see in the night. So it's always fascinated me this idea of the creation of light because light, <clears throat> light is actually, as it was created, it's actually protons, or, or fo- photons, excuse me, and they have no mass, uh, but yet what they are together is pure energy. It's, it's the, light is the radiance of, of energy, so it's a created thing. So it's interesting when you look at Job 12, verse 22, for instance, Job said, he, speaking of God, uncovers the de- deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. So if we aren't fascinated by that, we're going to miss something, I think, very important with regard to light and darkness and what the significance is that is to us. It, also, it had not only has significance in the physical sense, in the daylight that we're enjoying now and night as we're talking about, but in the metaphor that's played for our spiritual darkness that we were plunged into when Adam and Eve fell. All of mankind was fallen, dead, and blind, and walked in darkness. And we see God's plan to restore his creatures from, from Genesis 3 going forward. And a lot of that uh, is, uh, of course, prophesied by the, by the prophets, and, and we can make all those connections as we go through the Old Testament. So with the light that God created, he created it so that we could see. He created it so that the objects in our world would be clearly defined, that they would be accurately defined. It takes light to do that. We can't accurately define anything, even if it's somewhat dim, there's a little bit of light. It's still hard to make out shapes and figures with any degree of accuracy. So it takes the full uh, uh, bit of light that comes during the day to be able to see the things that we see, whether we turn light on and hear electronically or we go by the daylight. But that's the purpose of it. It's always been that purpose, is so that we would see things as they really are. And that's what light does. That's what it does. And if we, if we don't focus on something that we're, you might be thinking, yeah, okay, well, don't really think much about that, then we'll miss the importance of the metaphor as it relates to the spiritual darkness and the light that has now come. He who defines himself as the light, definite article, the light of the world, and no less than the I am, the ego am I. He is God who comes as light. So 
these are just some of the, this is just a little bit of the groundwork that I wanted to, uh, that I wanted to cover going into this. So we see then from the prophets going forward, how God is going to resolve this issue of spiritual darkness. Isaiah 42, verse six to eight, I will give you as a covenant. This is a promise friends. This is a definitely is going to happen because God fulfills it promise. A promise for the people, a light for the nations. That's everybody. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. And then in chapter 51, verse 4 to 5, we read as God's plan to restore uh, provides the righteousness that's going to be needed because of sin. So this is not such, has to do with uh, chapter 42 and the blindness being restored. This has to do with something, this is a legal issue. This is a forensic issue. We're going to need righteousness from somewhere because we don't have any of our own. And so we see that prophesied in 51, 4 to 5. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me. Here it comes. His name is Moses, and here it comes. But this is the prophecy. It's going to go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. So his justice is going to happen. It's going to happen by the instrumentality of light. So far, so good, but still a little confusing here. So let's, let's press on. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples. So there's a judgment there. We know we're fallen. We've seen that in Genesis three. We are unrighteous in that moment. We're going to need righteous, righteousness, a perfect righteousness. That's going to come from him. How? Well, he says, the light to my people, the light will come into this darkness and so will my salvation. Get the personal pronouns there. My salvation, my righteousness is going to come. Here it comes and it will come in the form of light. And then Isaiah 60, 1 to 3. Here he comes, at least in prophetic sense. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Pretty amazing, isn't it? In three passages, we can see the whole plan unfold, at least in general terms of the restoration of, of a people that have plunged themselves into darkness. And when he refers to the people's darkness, that spiritual darkness, he calls it a deep darkness. This is, if you've ever been in a cave and they've shut the light off to show you how dark it is, it's pretty dark. You automatically, your eyes go like this, but it doesn't do any good because you can't see a thing. You wait for them to adjust, right? For a minute or two, nothing's happening. I can't see a thing. That's how dead we are. That's how blind we are. And so this, this light is going to come. This light is going to come when his salvation comes. And it's a light that rises in the heart. He's the day star, he's called in another place. He rises. He rises from the east in another place. 
it's just beautiful to take those and, and combine them together to see what God is doing here. It's spectacular, actually. Isaiah 9, 2 to 6. We'll be looking at this around Christmas. You usually hear it. The people who have walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. We were in deep darkness, so we're going to need what? A great light. Those who dwelt in a land, there it is again, of deep darkness. On them has light shone. In verse 6. And this is very familiar to us. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So Messiah comes and he is the rising day star that rises in the hearts of God's people as his salvation is secured in their lives through faith in Christ. So I mentioned that light is actually particles. It's it's more accurately defined uh, by the, the photons it's made up of as, as a radiation of energy, which to me is, is fascinating. So this is physical light. And it's, it's energy as well, which is also a wonderful metaphor for Christ as the light of the world. He comes with the energy of deity. He comes with the energy and the power of God and, and when he does his illuminating work. It's amazing. We can't see it. Well, you can't see light. Light defines things. You can't see the photons. The photons have no mass, but they make things come alive. They make things perfectly understandable. We can define objects perfectly, accurately. That's the point. So Ephesians 5, Paul writes in the New Testament, verse 13 and 14, when anything is exposed to the light... It becomes visible. Now maybe we have a little bit greater appreciation why he would write such a statement. Yeah, we, under, we, we, we take that for granted. He says, for anything that becomes visible is light. So there's light required for us to be able to see things with accuracy, accuracy and truthfulness right now, here. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 36, 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Now here, in, from the psalmist anyway, you see the connection between life and light. When he came, he came as the life. Remember John 1? And the life, and the, and the light was what? The life was the light of men. Yeah. So we see that connection and we see how Christ comes. It's an illumination. This word in the Hebrew from, from this Psalm 36, 9 is a word that means illumination, clear, a bright morning star, a day star. That's how it's defined. It's a radiance. It's a brightness. It's an effulgence. Now to our text. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There they are connected again. It takes light to illuminate the deep darkness that man's spiritual heart is plunged into. There's no retrieving that on his own. Dead is dead. Blind is blind. He can see nothing. Respond to nothing unless the Lord brings life. Whoever follows me, he goes on to say, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But it begins with this. Again, he says, Jesus spoke to them. So I think this is a legitimate connection to the 
woman caught in adultery. Remember, that was sort of a spurious portion of text. It was questioned whether that it's in brackets in your Bible for that reason, because it's not in the earliest extant manuscripts. But I, I think that this is at least one indication that it really does, because if you try to connect this again, Jesus spoke to them. It doesn't fit after verse uh, 52 of chapter 7, which is where that would be connected to if you took out the woman caught in adultery. So it kind of neatly fits in there and sort of legitimizes that passage being in there, which I think is wonderful because uh, there's so much to learn from it. So the Lord is sitting down in the temple again teaching. So the woman caught in adultery is gone now. So are her accusers gone. So he sits down again to teach. And he's teaching. And he says these two words, I am. The second in this, in seven, in John's gospel, a clear declaration, unequivocal of his deity. And as I said, the definite article there, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me. So this is a believer. This is a disciple. This is a, a learner whose sole desire is to follow his master, uh, and learn from him, and obey him, and spend their life with him. That's what a follower does, to love him. Revelation 14.4 says, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. They follow. When he comes to save, the people that are saved follow him. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. <laughs> You're boasting about yourself. Where's your witnesses? You have none. You're just saying this of your own accord, and it's a pretty grand statement. I think there might be some delusions of grandeur here, especially when you say you're the bread that comes down from heaven, that you've been sent, and so on. They don't want to believe it. Therefore, your testimony is not true. Well, Jesus previously agreed with them, if you remember, in chapter 5 and verse 31, where he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There you go. But what does he say in verse 32 of chapter 5? There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So he has his witness. He had John the Baptist as well. You remember, he's, he has his witness. He was the forerunner. So the Pharisee's opposition isn't born out of lack of information. We see him repeating these in, in the various discourses. He's repeating things over and over again. They keep trying to find a, thin, a, a crack, a thin place to put the point of a wedge that they can... Uh, knock his story apart and his claims, his declarations, but it's just not happening. They don't know who they're dealing with, and they don't want to know. So they weren't opposed to him because of lack of information or because of any error. They can't find any error in what he's saying. They rejected Jesus as Messiah and as the Son of God because of their willful unbelief. It's important to know that. It's willful. In fact, They've never examined what Jesus said 
over against Scripture. When have they done that in the discourses we've been through already? They never do that. Well, wait a minute. Pull out the scroll. You're wrong here. Never. This is willful. So I, I made this statement to uh, the men I was with yesterday morning, our discipleship group. It's important for us to understand that desire affects belief. Desire affects belief. If their desire is, I don't want to have anything to do with a, with a guy who is going to completely disrupt my life and my livelihood and the respect I receive for being on, in the Sanhedrin or being a Pharisee or whatever, I don't want to have anything to do with him. So I, I, I don't believe you. Comes out. So desire affects belief. If you have a desire, an honest, sincere desire to know who the Savior is, then you'll believe in him. It's really quite simple, but that profound because it's hard to imagine somebody choosing not to believe something that would save their eternal soul. But that's what they're doing. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. My testimony is true. God never lies. Titus 1, 2. It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews six eighteen. He can't lie. It's not anywhere in his nature to be found. At some point he found evil in Lucifer and cast him down. That was a capability. But lying is just... there's. It's impossible for God. God cannot lie. So his testimony is true. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Everything that you say, O God, everything that's written of the things that you say, every word, every jot and tittle of it is true. Because you cannot lie. Do we believe that? If we did, would our lives be different? Or do we act like there's little vestiges in our heart or little chambers of unbelief that we sort of allow because we don't want to believe it? Because it would change us. I don't know. Something for you to think about. Something for me to think about. John three, thirty-three to 34 Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal on to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. He utters the words of God, and it is the words of God that are the truth of God. In his high priestly prayer in chapter 17 and verse 17, sanctify them by thy uh, truth, thy word is truth. So his word is, is true, it's truth. So the question is, do I believe everything that the Bible says? If I really did and I believed everything, we like to say we do, would my life be any different than it is right now? Fair question to ask. I mean, if you're serious about your faith, but not easy to ask. I know where I came from, he said, and where I am going. So he's establishing the fact of his deity. Obviously, he's 
squarely indicating his eternality. I told you I was sent from the Father. He's got to repeat these things, as I said. This is his, him saying, speaking of his righteousness, because only God is righteous. This is him speaking of his purity, because only, only in glory, part of the Godhead is perfect purity. I know where I came from. You all don't even know. You think I'm from Nazareth. Remember that issue? He's not from Nazareth. Did they really know that he's from Bethlehem, but not want to admit to that? Desire affects belief. They know he was born. They could look in the records. They're in the temple there. That he was born in the city of David, just as was prophesied. Isn't he from Nazareth? Huh. It's interesting. It intrigues me. I'd like to be there just to see what the look on their faces are. Just to see if we can see somebody trying to angle something to keep their position or to keep their lifestyle the way it is. Because this is a whole lot of truth. This is a parcel of truth to live by, isn't it? Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. That's how you judge. I judge no one. We covered that before too. I didn't come to judge. I came to bring peace. I came, I came for people to be saved. That's why I came. You're already judged. Every one of you is already judged. That doesn't need to happen. The judgment has come. The law of Moses is here. Everybody gets a failing grade. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. That's a tough one to get around for them. You judge according to the flesh, he starts with. So the Pharisees are, are judging according to their own fleshly desires and according to what they see, what they want to see. Desire affects belief. They're, they're the counting, measuring, and weighing. Are you keeping the law of Moses? We can see that where there are our own eyes that you're not fulfilling all. Have you paid the temple tax? Have you counted out your seeds of cumin and the rest of it? Have you done that? That's what we're watching for. I think you were a little short on your count, a little short on that temple tax too. What does that have to do with salvation? What does that have to do with our problem of having offended a holy God by failing to love him and keep his commandments? Nothing. But that's how they judge. That's what he's saying. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Jesus does not. He judges spiritually. He does something they can't do. He did something that you and I can't do. He judges by the... We think we know what someone else is. Which comes from their... Heart, yes, from their heart. We, we claim to, especially, especially, especially it's that temptation in marriage, yeah? I know why you said that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't judge according to the flesh. He doesn't judge according to what is seen. 1 Samuel 16, 7 makes it clear. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at an outward, on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
He looks at the heart. So he's looking squarely, not at what you're doing, at your motives for doing it. How about that? At your judgments. He's looking at your perceptions. He's looking at your and my small worldview. He's looking at it all, man. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees it all. But we, 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 we like to sort of hide from that truth because, wow, that's pretty glaring. Everything, every single thought, everything we might call a secret sin, as the psalmist points out, is open, wide open to him. That's, that's how God judges. They judge according to the flesh, their own flesh, and the flesh of what they see in people on the outer, in the outer man. Solomon's uh, prayer of dedication for the temple in 1 Kings 8, 38 and 39. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made, he's praying to God. Whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Even though we pretend to at times. He's inviting this prayer. He's inviting this this investigation. Solomon's inviting God to do that. Because, I would speculate, I think it's pretty I think it's accurate because he wants everyone going into the brand new temple in sincerity and transparency with open hearts, sincerely seeking the Lord. And if there's sin found there, they will seek to uh, confess and repent and so on. So he's inviting him to look at their hearts because that's what counts. That's what makes the difference. Jeremiah 17, 10 I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And then Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, makes it clear that this is no longer how we look at people either. Because we used to look at people that way. He was a Pharisee. So that's how he used to look at people, him and his cohort of apostles we don't look at people like that anymore not according to the flesh you remember when he said in second corinthians 5 16 from now on that is now that the spirit spiritual lights have come on we regard no one according to the flesh do we still do that thank you i see that nod we do we do Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. This is more than a man. This is more than a rabbi. This is more than a a guy who really knows the scripture. This This is more than just a really good man who feeds thousands of people, heals hundreds of people, who's only going about, as Acts 10 says, doing good. Because he is good. He's more than that. There's something about him that evidences there's more than that. So we don't look at him in the flesh anymore. He'd still be quite a man, wouldn't he? 
for all of his works. Remember when he said, well, if you don't believe me, believe me because of the works. What other man do you know that's like me? He challenges them. But Paul gets it. Paul says, we don't look that way anymore. I think we need to challenge ourselves to think about that. Not to judge one another in terms of what we see and what we think and perceive about what's going on. That's why it's so important to heed what Jesus said, to go to a person in private. Is, is what I'm seeing accurate? Absolutely imperative. But it's our pride that prevents us from doing it. We won't do it. I'm, I want, I'm going to be left alone with what I think. To our own shame. Verse 17. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. So it's true if you've got two or three witnesses. You remember your Judeo jurisprudence? That was Mosaic law. Two or three witnesses, yeah? That's what he's referring to. Verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He has to tell them again. It's more than just my word, friends. <laughs> it's the Father who sent me. Notice they don't challenge that. They don't challenge that. The Father who sent me. You remember in the last chapter, just the last chapter, in chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from? <laughs> I suggest that he's saying that in a sarcastic way. Yeah, Jesus showed some sarcasm from time to time. This is ridiculous. You'd, you've, you've already proclaimed that you don't know who I am or where I actually came from. But I have, have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. We just covered that in chapter 7. He's got to say it again. He's still at the temple. First John 5, 10 to 11. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So now we bear the testimony. If we've come to Christ, we have. Because we come to Christ by belief. Now we've been given the testimony to bear. We are, bear, we are witnesses of Christ. You remember Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will be my witnesses that go out to all the nations, right? Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So in his first epistle, John is restating the important fact, and that is we read the testimony of Christ, we read what he had to say about who he is, and we believe and we are saved. That's it. In chapter 5 of John, remember this? Chapter 5 of John, when he said in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then verse 33 to 37, you, you sent to John, he's talking about John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. I don't get it from John. But I say these things so that you may be saved. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm bearing testimony. I'm here because I love you and I want you to be saved. But you have to believe. John, it says in verse 35 of chapter 5, he was a burning and shining lamp. You remember the difference between the light, the big light that is Christ, and the luknos that it says in Greek when it refers to John? It's a lamp. It's a smaller light that comes into us, but it's nevertheless illuminated. It's the illumination revealing who Christ is. Remember, that's why I started where I did. You need light to define things. You need light for the, for the beauty of Christ to be able to show. And you're familiar with 2 Corinthians 4, right? Their hearts were veiled. Their minds were blinded by the God of this world. And they were kept from seeing the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God himself. So he says here that John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp and you were, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light because it wasn't really a risk at that point. That's not very challenging to hear a guy who's just strutting around saying the Lamb of God is coming, the Savior of the whole world. He's saying, yeah, he's saying repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, but I'm not really threatened by that. I'd like to see him come, actually. I think it'll be great. He'll work something out. I'll still be able to stay the way I am. That's kind of a general statement, isn't it? Repent for the kingdom of God. is. It sounds grand. It sounds really noble. Sign me up. I'm there. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness of me. So there's no question. He said that in chapter 5. He went through it again in chapter 7. He has to keep saying the same things. But the irony is, a little further on in chapter 5, verse 39, actually, truthfully, all of Scripture bears witness to Christ. You search the Scriptures, what? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that speak of me. You want me to find a second or third witness? Are you kidding? How blind can you be? The entirety of Scripture, the entirety of the Word of God lifts up and defines with a great light who this Messiah is. He's undeniable. You can't, you have to choose to miss it. That's why I say it's willful. It's based on your lack of desire to know him and your innate desire to live the way you want to live. Desire affects belief. In his high priestly prayer, John 17, 25, indeed all scripture does bear witness to him. Here he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. All of the extant followers of Christ know. 
He started with 12 disciples. By the time they crucify him, he's got a, a church of 120 people up in the upper room praying. All of these. And I would suggest that he's by indirect uh, reference referring to all of us. We all bear witness to Christ because we seek him. We're here today to worship him. We want to see him exalted. We always use that language and it's beautiful language. It's powerful language. It's truthful language. We would see Christ needs to be emblazoned across this pulpit. We would see Christ. Why? Because we're blind. We need the light. We need the light to come and to find him in every intricate detail. As frightening as that ought to be if we were sensible people, because it's extremely challenging. We see him as he is, not as some little flanograph cut out from those are kind of cool for kids, not for you or I. You see, desire. I want to see him. I, I, I want him to turn up the heat. I want him to make life difficult. And he does. Because I can see him more clearly. He burns away the barnacles of my worldliness so that I can see him in greater detail. Fall on my face and worship him in great hope with joy and gratitude and effulgence flowing out of my... That's what I want. I hope you do too. I think you do. But it's something to ask for, isn't it? Bring it on. Mm. Well, next week. Yeah. He'll do it. He's already doing it. He's already doing it. Verse 19. They said to him, therefore... Now, isn't this always the case? They can't defeat him with, with reason from the scriptures. Okay, Even the Bereans were looking carefully at the things Paul preached. They're looking at the scriptures, and so should we. So what do they do? Get the scriptures and point out places where he must be wrong? No. They insult him. Where's your, where's your father? Where is your father? You keep talking about the father sent me. Where is he? You judge according to the flesh. Remember when he just said that? Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing. You have no idea who I am, where I came from. He who first, he who has ascended must first descend. So he descends so that he can ascend. This is him. Where's your father? <laughs> this still goes on today, doesn't it? People fail to be able to reason from the truth or from Scripture. Where's your daddy? They mock. It's ad hominem. We see a lot of ad misericordium in terms of fallacious ways of arguing. They argue because of the intensity of their emotion. We're, we're right and our, our argument is true because we feel so strongly. See that around the world right now. It's a fallacious argument. What does that have to do with the truth? What does that have to do with who occupied the place you're calling Pal Palestine prior to 1917? 
did you want to talk about that or do you just want to get louder? Get more vicious. Scary. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. You remember, in, or, or actually, in a few verses, in chapter 8 and verse 41, they say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. So they come right out and say it here. We have one father. <laughs> Wait for it. Even God. Wow. How does that work? All of you were immaculately made. I don't think so because you are a cadre of liars and thieves. You're wicked. You have got not God for a father. They have a father, right? You remember verse 44 of chapter 8? You are of your father, the devil. That's your father. We'll get to that at some point, Lord willing. We weren't born of sexual immorality. Matthew 11, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 10, verse 15, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. He has to continually repeat this because of their unbelief. Though they're willful unbelief verse 14 or chapter 14 rather verse 7 of john if you had known me you would have known my father from now on you do know him and have seen him guess what if you've seen me remember what he said to philip philip you've been with me this long and you still have to ask show us the father you're not getting this. I and the Father are, oh, I can't wait to get to that in chapter 10, because what do they do? When he says, I and the Father are one. Oh, is that right? Okay, and they concede and they shake his hand and go have a falafel. They pick up stones, don't they? Them's not just fighting words. Them's killing words. So he is in full control, get it? He's in full control with how he's ratcheting up their contempt. You remember when he said a couple of times now already, my hour has not yet come. It's going to say it at the end of our passage, isn't it? First John 2.23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Finally, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one arrested him because, here it is, his hour had not yet come. And you have to remember, folks, if we embrace a sovereign God, a sovereign view of God, that applies to you and I. If it's not our time, it's not going to happen. If it is our time, nothing's going to prevent it from happening. That's it. That's not meant to scare us. That's not meant to make us feel powerless, although we should. It's meant to comfort us. I am, as Martin Luther said, I am immortal until God says it's time to take me home. Immortal. His hour had not yet come. 
In chapter 12 of John, verse 27 to 36, listen to this now as we put some things together here and head toward a landing. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Because here it comes. Here it comes, and he's bringing it on. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? Can you believe this? I'm having trouble reading it. Verse 35, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little longer. Here it is. You want to see God in the flesh by the light that I created? Here I am. And they're still blind in their ignorance, their willful ignorance. While you have the light, lest darkness overtake you, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, and here it is, believe in the life, light, that you may become sons of light. Psalm 119, verse 130, says something very important with regard to how God sends his light now. The unfolding of your words gives light. So when people are willing to understand, I want to know the truth, Lord God, Show me the truth. Here's where it comes. This is the light. He is the light. He is also the Word. This is Him showing up, lighting Himself up in the heart of those who are willing to believe, defining Himself just as perfectly as ever. The Word's of God, you could say, are the photons that define Him. The waves, the radiance of energy that comes and lights Him up so you can see Him. So we pray for for the children. At some point that, that God appoints for them that they would see Him. They're going to need light to do that. His Word is the light. His Word is the photons, if you will, that the eye of the heart can see. It's the heart that needs to see. And the only way it'll see is through the word of God. The psalmist gets that. If you're, will, if you're unwilling, though, 
as chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians and, and, and chapter 4 mention, a veil remains over their heart. Why? Not enough information? Oh, my goodness. Look what we've covered already, just in John's gospel. Plenty of information to either refute or agree with. They won't agree with it. It's willful. They willfully choose, and so a veil remains over their heart. So they cannot see. They cannot see. A veil needs to be lifted, so the light. The words that are, that are photons for the eye of the heart can see because people need to see Christ. If you do believe, the eye of your heart will receive that light and you'll see him. Oh, you'll see him. You'll know him when he comes. It's amazing. Did you ever watch a child come to Christ? They're, they act like they've known him all along. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus. I... It's what Helen Keller said. Deaf, dumb, and blind. When the gospel was finally communicated to her, she communicated back, oh, the one you're describing, I've known. I just didn't know what his name was. Photons, light, illuminating the heart. Fantastic. Fantastic. Job 33, 28 to 30. A couple more verses and we're done. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of of life. This is arguably the oldest book in the Bible. And that's how he describes it. Psalm 56, verse 13, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Your choice, my choice. To have the lights turned on, but there's a lot at stake. He wants all of you. Not part. He doesn't want you compartmentalizing your stated Christianity. He wants your whole heart. He wants your whole life. And if you do, you'll have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for what it says to us. Lord, I pray that you would turn the lights on, the, that the eyes of our hearts might see you, that our eyes might see you, the eyes of our heart might embrace you, welcome you, find you winsome, find you attractive in terms of who you are as our Savior. May, may we never willfully reject any of the descriptions that you give us in your word of who you are and who you expect us to be in you. We're grateful, Lord. We celebrate that here this morning in communion. And so, Lord, we ask you to be with us as we do, 
as we give you thanks now in Christ's name. Amen.